Hey listeners, it's Molly Brandenburg, co-host of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. It's time to cap off our Jurassic Week series with a little help from Carter Roy and Richard Rossner. Thanks, Molly. Carter here. For the movie's 30th anniversary, we've been sinking our teeth into wild, behind-the-scenes stories, shocking facts about dinosaurs, and a conspiracy theory that feels like a plot point come to life. I'm Richard, and I can't wait to cap this series off by looking at whether dinosaurs can be brought back from the dead. Let's dig into it. In the early 2000s, a paleontologist named Mary Schweitzer conducted an experiment. First, she dropped a fossil into acid. Then, the chemicals began dissolving minerals that had accumulated over millions of years. Schweitzer was destroying an iconic T-Rex leg bone on purpose. The dinosaur in question was called Bob. Paleontologists picked the name before they realized the Tyrannosaur had actually been a pregnant female. Actually, I have a cousin named Bobby who's a female, so it, it could work. Bob had been unearthed in a remote part of Montana, but when the field teams determined her leg bone was too heavy to be loaded into a helicopter, they broke her into smaller pieces. One of the fragments made their way to Schweitzer's lab. She wanted a closer look at the bone's interior, which meant she had to dissolve the hard fossilized parts while preserving the soft inner tissue. Hence, the acid, a special blend that ate away at the rocky coating while leaving the squishy parts intact. Once that step was done, Schweitzer put the ancient material under her microscope she was hoping to find a layer of soft tissue revealing an arrangement of collagen fibers. Birds formed a similarly random arrangement of fibrous tissues when they were about to lay an egg, and Schweitzer theorized dinosaurs went through a similar process. If she was right, she'd have one more piece of information showing just how similar dinosaurs and birds were. But when she looked in the microscope, Schweitzer spotted something even more remarkable, a network of blood vessels containing what looked like red blood cells. Schweitzer had potentially recovered what she believed to be remnants of dino blood. It had survived for millions of years. And if these cells had survived for that long, maybe there was still some DNA intact too. If so, it could be just what the researchers needed to clone a T-Rex. Welcome to Jurassic Week, our three-part special presented by Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries. We're teaming up to celebrate one of the most beloved movie franchises of all time, Jurassic Park. In our last episode, we discussed how the movie's dinos differed from the real-world creatures. If you came face-to-face -face with an actual T-Rex, would you know what to do? You may get the chance to find out 
because today some scientists are trying to bring all sorts of extinct animals back from the dead. This episode will examine their research and debate whether dinosaurs could thrive in the wild, if they'd freeze to death in our modern climate, or if there's a chance they could even enlist with the U.S. Army. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. One of the most famous scenes in the original Jurassic Park movie features the entire cast sitting down to eat together. The park's owner, a man named John Hammond, played by film legend Richard Attenborough, joins them. Hammond just showed the characters his park. Everything from a baby velociraptor hatching from an egg to adult predators devouring their prey. While the cast grapples with what they've seen, Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm has his doubts. He's not convinced it's safe to bring dinosaurs back to life, no matter how advanced the technology is. Or as he puts it, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Hold on to your butts, folks, because today we're following in Hammond's footsteps. We're going to explore whether it's possible to bring dinosaurs and other ancient animals back to life. Our discussions won't be strictly hypothetical, because believe it or not, many scientists are working on this as we speak. The field is called de-extinction, and it refers to any attempt to resurrect an extinct animal through cloning, genetic modification, and breeding. In the films, scientists found ancient DNA preserved in amber. They used it to create clones, but some pieces of genetic code were missing, so researchers combined dino genes with frogs and other creatures to create hybrids that were mostly saurian. Only there was a big problem with this plot point. You can't extract dino DNA from amber in real life. Wait, wait, wait. Michael Crichton, who wrote the Jurassic Park novel, came up with his idea after he read a study on cells preserved in amber. We covered this in part one. Researchers George Poinard Jr. and Roberta Hess made their breakthrough when they examined an ancient fly. But remember, Poinard and Hess didn't claim to be able to analyze preserved DNA. They identified a cellular nucleus, which is just where the DNA is stored. Now think of it this way. A nucleus is like a jar, and the genes are the peanut butter that goes inside. Carter's right. Imagine you're cleaning out your kitchen cabinets when you come across that ancient jar of peanut butter. Even though it's really old, it doesn't look bad from the outside. The label is still bright and legible. There's no obvious mold or spoilage. Maybe the seal isn't even broken yet. Then you unscrew the lid and... Ugh, it's crusty, discolored, totally rancid. Nothing you want to eat. The long sit in the cupboard broke down the fats while leaving the jar untouched. That's sort of how cells in amber operate. Their nuclei, the jars, are still perfectly intact. But the peanut buttery DNA inside has mostly disintegrated. 
And that's what Poinar and Hess saw, the nucleus, not the genes. In real life, it's super hard to get genetic information from cells in amber because DNA breaks down really fast. Faster than resin can harden into rock. Even if a few strands of genetic data survive, the chemical process that turns sap into stone usually damages them. So even though amber might be able to preserve cells and some structures in them, it's bad at protecting the actual genes. Some believe there's absolutely no dinosaur DNA left anywhere on our planet today. About two decades after Poinar and Hess's paper, when Mary Schweitzer found what looked like red blood cells inside Bob, they didn't have DNA either. Still, her discovery was remarkable, because before that, there wasn't any solid evidence suggesting red blood cells could keep their structure for millions of years inside a fossil, without any amber or other preservatives to keep them intact. It reshaped the way we understand fossilization and tissue decomposition. But it wouldn't help anyone bring dinosaurs back to life. So cloning was out. Unlike the characters in Jurassic Park, you can't make a genetic copy if you don't have original DNA to copy. Instead, researchers are now looking for other ways to resurrect dinos. Like backbreeding, a fancy term for rewinding evolution through carefully managed mating. Here's how it could work. You live on a farm where you have dozens of chickens. One day, you go through the flock and set aside all the hens and roosters that already have dino-like traits. You make the Saurian-ish chickens mate and end up with a bunch of chicks that are sort of dinosaur-like, if you squint. Then you do another round of careful matchmaking and the chicks' descendants will be fairly dinosaurian. The next generation will be even more so, and eventually, you'll end up with chickens that look an awful lot like velociraptors. Sounds too simple to be real, right? But researchers have already tried this with a species called aurochs. Aurochs are these big black cow-like creatures with large horns. They're also extinct and most people thought they would stay that way. That is, until the 1940s, when brothers Lutz and Heinz Heck attempted to bring the aurochs back from the dead through backbreeding. See, modern-day cattle are direct descendants of aurochs, so the Heck brothers selected various bovine breeds and made them mate until their offspring appeared to be just like the original species. The problem? The animals they bred weren't real aurochs. They may have had a few physical similarities, but the hex weren't paying attention to genetics when they paired their cows off. So the new aurochs had very different DNA from the old extinct ones. So if we backbred chickens into raptors, we'd likely end up with something similar. An odd subbreed of birds that are toothy and reptilian, but aren't a DNA match to dinosaurs. 
a better solution might lie in newer technologies like gene splicing and CRISPR. Those are tools that let us add, remove, and change existing genetic information. We'll save you a science lesson on how CRISPR works, but without getting into the ethical problems or practical challenges inherent in the technology, here's a hypothetical example. If you wanted a baby to have blue eyes instead of brown, or if you wanted to remove a genetic disposition towards sickle cell disease, CRISPR would theoretically allow you to do that. It would cut out the gene you don't want and paste in the one you do. And it could work for animals as well, like, say, tweaking a songbird to make it bigger and toothier. In a way, gene splicing tools like CRISPR are a compromise between backbreeding and cloning. We're still altering the existing animals, like backbreeders do, but we're not just basing our edits on the way the animals look. We're modifying them at a genetic level, like cloning would. Except that brings us back to that same old problem. You wouldn't know which changes to make unless you had some dino DNA as reference. But even if you can't get your hands on a perfectly preserved double helix, you can work with partial information to make a chicken-dino hybrid that's really close. That's right, because while we don't have genes, we do have skeletons. So perhaps one day, we could edit bird genetics to change some of their physical characteristics. But there are some traits we don't know how to edit for. Like, would our genetically engineered Chickenosaurus act like a real dinosaur? Since we're not totally sure how dinos behaved, we'll never be able to say for sure. Which is why, if you want a quote-unquote real dinosaur, rather than a bird that resembles one, you might need to approach your work a different way. And the answer wouldn't lie in new laboratory techniques, but in an ancient code. One that could be activated with the flip of a switch. Coming up, scientists turn on a dormant prehistoric gene. Now back to the story. Welcome back. I'm your host, Molly, and I'm a fish. I'm your host, Richard, and I'm a fish, too. I'm Carter Roy, also a fish. No, seriously. Let's back up. To take a complex issue and put it simply, scientists can't really agree on what a species is. The idea is straightforward enough when you're explaining what makes your dog different from a boa constrictor. But it's harder when you're trying to explain why a Chihuahua and a Great Dane are the same species, yet foxes and Shiba Inu aren't. So when scientists are trying to sort the natural world into categories, they have to make rules, some of which are pretty arbitrary. One of those guidelines says, if animal A evolves into animal B, the new species is still part of the same group as the original. And every vertebrate that lives on land ultimately evolved from fish. That means under these rules, 
all mammals, including humans, are technically fish. Using the same logic, all birds are dinos since they evolved from dinosaurs. Want to see a living dinosaur? Grab a pair of binoculars and some high-quality bird seed. They'll flock to you. It's a cute concept, but a lot of us don't actually perceive birds as dinosaurs. They're clearly not the same thing. I'd typically agree with you, Molly. However, all birds still carry genes from their saurian ancestors. It's just that sometimes these genes are turned off, so to speak. We're talking about something called epigenetics, and it's pretty complicated. So we're going to explain it through a metaphor. Imagine you're shopping for a new car, and the one you buy has seat warmers. That doesn't mean the seats will be warmed all the time. You'll wait for winter before you turn it on for a toasty tush. And when you don't need it anymore, you switch the heater off again. Epigenetics is kind of like those seat warmers. They're qualities or genes that aren't on all the time. In fact, they might never turn on. Some are left over from ancient ancestors, genetic codes we haven't used in millions of years. But they have the potential to be activated in the right conditions. Smoking can flip certain genes on or off. So can exposure to certain viruses. A mother's diet during pregnancy can affect the baby's epigenetics. Some switch automatically as we age. Basically, almost anything you do can impact epigenetics. And when these genes are activated, they can do incredible things. Researchers have already found they can make embryonic birds grow dinosaur snouts instead of beaks. All they needed was one small tweak. Basically, when chickens were still in their eggs, certain naturally occurring proteins made their genes turn on and form a beak. Scientists altered this expression, activating the proteins in such a way that they would behave more like those found in reptilian snouts. They essentially turned off the beak function and replaced it with a snout function. When they did that, other parts of the bird's skulls changed too. The top part of their mouths, which determined how their jaws move, transformed to make the embryos more similar to their ancient ancestors. In other words, the creature changed on its own to become more like a dinosaur while using information already recorded in its DNA. It's pretty remarkable. It's distinct from backbreeding because major changes can happen over a single generation. And unlike CRISPR, scientists aren't necessarily controlling every edit. They can make minor tweaks, then let nature take the wheel. At least in theory. Those birds with snouts never hatched. After scientists confirmed the experiment worked, they terminated the embryos. They clearly heeded the warnings of the Jurassic Park franchise. Still, even without living, breathing dino chickens, this was big news. Some paleontologists saw this as a sign we were close to bringing dinosaurs back from extinction if we wanted to. One paleontologist, Jack Horner, told Live Science, quote, from a quantitative point of view, we're 50% there. 
If you're a film buff, you might recognize Horner's name. He's the inspiration for Sam Neill's character in the first Jurassic Park movie. He also served as an advisor on several films in the franchise, making sure the on-screen creatures were fairly accurate. After that, he went on to try to make Jurassic Park a reality. In 2011, he gave a TED Talk called Building a Dinosaur from a Chicken. As Horner described it, the process for turning a bird into a dino is fairly simple. It has just four steps. First, the creature needs teeth. Second, a long tail. Third, arms. And fourth, hands at the ends of those arms. Essentially, he's saying, if scientists achieve these steps with epigenetics, they could end up with a real dinosaur one with the authentic dino DNA that survived inside birds for millions of years, not something that was edited into existence after the fact. Since those first researchers figured out how to turn birds' beaks into snouts, we're well on our way. As of 2015, Horner was heavily involved in a program that was trying to give birds long dinosaurian tails, too. Step two of his four-step process. It's clear what his end goals are. In a 2014 interview with Smithsonian Magazine, he implied it was just a matter of time until we can bring dinosaurs back from extinction. Guess he didn't learn his lesson from the movies. But can you blame him? Lots of people would love to see these animals walk again. It's true, he's just one of many scientists working to resurrect dinosaurs, and some of them are doing research that might actually be classified. Yes, classified. In September 2022, investigative reporter Daniel Boguslaw published a story for The Intercept. It detailed a whole new effort to bring extinct animals back to life. The researchers behind the project work for a company called Colossal Biosciences, but they received a significant chunk of their funding from a venture capitalist fund called InQtel, which turns out was financed by the CIA. Colossal Biosciences claimed they wanted to bring back a lot of long gone species, including dodo birds and woolly mammoths. One founder admitted he'd be interested in cloning Neanderthals, too. But the CIA was particularly interested in the science behind it all. According to a blog post from InQtel's website, if they can unlock the inner workings of genes and bioengineering, they can create almost anything. Trees that produce higher quality wood or wheat that thrives in extreme weather. They might even be able to unlock cures for cancer or sickle cell disease. Of course, the CIA isn't known for being transparent about their intentions, and they may be more interested in things like the dodo bird or the mammoth than they're letting on. We don't know what their real motives are, but we could make an educated guess. InQtel is supposed to fund innovations related to national security, so perhaps the mammoths are their next great weapon. 
picture it. A group of soldiers deep behind barricades and trenches. The heavy fortifications ensure no one will reach them until... An enormous mammoth plows through the wooden barricades. It shakes its tusks back and forth, smashing wood and brick with its powerful trunk. As the soldiers flee, a saber-toothed tiger stalks them across the battlefield. And just when they think they've escaped it, they find themselves face to face with a vicious dire wolf. If this scene of Ice Age carnage sounds unsettling, think how much more dangerous a militarized dinosaur army could be. You heard that right. Dinosaur Army. It might sound like something out of science fiction, but if you follow the money, you might find that groups like the CIA want to make this a reality. Coming up, Dinosaur Super Soldiers. Now back to the story. The military has a history of working with dinos. They already own a massive collection of fossils, including a nearly complete T-Rex skeleton. It was the first specimen ever found with a fully intact arm. Plus, they have part of a triceratops and an ancient lobster shell that's still red millions of years later. Basically, a scientific treasure trove and some wonder, why is this stuff in the army's possession? Well, I think we know the answer. Dinosaur remains might offer military applications. Consider the psychological aspect. A rampaging dino doesn't even have to be that vicious or violent. The idea of a T-Rex soldier could be terrifying enough to stop enemy forces in their tracks. The thought is so striking, it's a major plot point in the Jurassic World trilogy. We see foreign governments bidding on dinosaurs in a Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom auction. And Jurassic World Dominion features raptors that have been trained to hunt and kill specific targets. While the military possibilities weren't as big a focus in the original trilogy, it still established dinosaurs as vicious killing machines. The possibility of harnessing that violence is just too captivating to ignore. At least to Hollywood executives. In reality, a dino army would likely be too expensive to risk in combat. One raptor killed in action might mean billions of dollars lost, so you wouldn't want them on the front lines. Plus, they need to be fed, housed, and trained. That's a lot of resources for a weapon. One that wouldn't know how to differentiate between friend, foe, and non-combatant. Sounds like a lot of drawbacks. Which is why we don't think the U.S. government is holding on to these dinos to weaponize in the future. Instead, their massive trove of fossils has a more logical explanation. Over several decades, the Army Corps of Engineers built a lot of dams for flood control. When they dug the foundations, 
they uncovered a bunch of ancient bones, which legally belonged to them since they were on government land. So it wasn't like the Corps purchased the fossils, but once they uncovered them, they did become property of the Army. As for the CIA-funded de-extinction studies, they have a simple explanation too. They're likely attempts to mitigate climate change. Believe it or not, climate change is a national security issue. Superstorms and rising sea levels threaten civilians and military infrastructure alike. Extreme droughts could create food shortages that lead to civil unrest. So the CIA has a vested interest in stopping it. And studying mammoths could ostensibly help. The gist of colossal biosciences argument is this. Back during the Ice Age, massive beasts like mammoths stomped across the Arctic tundra, maintaining grasslands that absorbed large amounts of carbon and helped keep the Earth cool. If we bring these creatures back and reintroduce them to the Arctic, maybe they could revive the ecosystem and combat global warming. This is just their theory. Some researchers say the whole trampling the tundra to cool the Earth hypothesis is unrealistic. That's fair. It's hard to imagine a modern version of the woolly mammoth being enough to offset global carbon emissions. Okay, so de-extinction probably won't stop climate change on its own, but it could help us learn about it. And we need to brush up on the topic fast. Because the sad truth is, our ecological crisis means countless species are in danger, including many insects, corals, reptiles, even us human beings. Temperature changes threaten ecosystems all over the world. Droughts are on the rise, which means fewer crops, which means less food to go around. More floods and superstorms mean more standing water, which equals a breeding ground for disease-spreading insects and more epidemics. So, if we can understand how some species survived apocalyptic climate shifts while others died out, maybe we can save ourselves and the rest of the Earth's inhabitants. That's assuming we can successfully resurrect anything. At least as of 2022, no scientist has ever brought back an extinct species. No dinosaurs, no mammoths, not even the aurochs, even though Lutz and Heinz Heck certainly did try. We haven't even managed it with animals that went extinct recently. Take the splendid poison frog, which was declared extinct in 2020. That's recent enough that scientists had the chance to observe them, learn how they behave, study their mating practices, even potentially take DNA samples. We don't know if they tried to bring back the splendid poison frog, but if they did, it wasn't successful enough to make the news. So if we can't resurrect recently extinct species, what chance does the Velociraptor have? That question is especially impactful when you think of how the Earth has changed since the dinosaur era. Some experts have suggested our planet is currently too cold for these animals. In the Cretaceous period, when T. rex and Triceratops roamed, 
the Earth was an average of two to four degrees Celsius warmer. For context, scientists believe if global warming heats the planet two or more degrees on average, it will trigger massive climate change. Think droughts, tropical superstorms, and sea levels rising more than half a foot. That's the sort of world the dinosaurs lived in. So chances of us living to see them thrive are slim. Plus, the atmosphere of 150 million years ago might have had a higher oxygen content. If a dinosaur time traveled to today, it could have a hard time catching its breath. Besides these physiological concerns, there's also a question of whether dinosaurs would get to behave the same way as they did back then. Would they have enough to eat if their favorite food wasn't brought back from extinction? Would they have enough wide open space to roam around? In spite of all these questions, Colossal Biosciences is still researching de-extinction. And they're not alone. In 2006, a Canadian firm tried and failed to recruit Hendrik Poinar. He's the son of George Poinar Jr., the guy who helped discover the fly's cellular nucleus in amber. We don't know why Poinar turned down the gig, but we can guess at his reasons. Namely, de-extinction isn't logical. There's no reason to bring Saurians into the 21st century. But here we are. In spite of all the arguments against it, scientists are trying to bring back dinosaurs. It comes back to the questions we touched on earlier. Why do we love these creatures so much? What makes them so special? It might be for the simplest of reasons. We relate to them. The most famous thing these animals ever did was die out. And now here we are, poised on the brink of another extinction event in the form of climate change. We may feel like we're just as doomed as the dinosaurs. Who knows? Maybe tens of millions of years from now, some other intelligent creatures could pull our bones from the Earth. Museum visitors will travel from all over the world to see our remains. They might make movie franchises where rampaging humans break out of theme parks and terrorize the locals. Perhaps as they gaze at the screen, they'll feel inspired to make new scientific breakthroughs. Just like many of us did after we watched Jurassic Park for the very first time. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll be back next time with more episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and Conspiracy Theories. New episodes of Conspiracy Theories air on Mondays and Wednesdays, and Unexplained Mysteries airs on Tuesdays. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories, Unexplained Mysteries, and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries are Spotify originals from Parcast. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and Spencer Howard as our post-production supervisor. Quality control by Lisa Marie Gallegos. 
Ali Wicker and Ryan O'Leary-Jones are our supervising editors, and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This special episode of Conspiracy Theories and Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, edited by Lori Marinelli, fact-checked by Bennett Logan, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, recorded by Alex Button, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Brian Golub. Our hosts are Carter Roy, Molly Brandenburg, and me, Richard Rossner. <laughs>